I think it's a go. I think we're in the room. Innes, hi, how are you doing? Hi, hello, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Excellent, excellent. Now you're you're in Berlin, is that right? Yes, correct. I am in Berlin indeed, at the Berlin School of Mind and Brain from uh, Humboldt University. Right, okay. But you're not from Berlin, are you? No, no, um, I was actually born um, in Portugal. Um, and then uh, eventually uh, during my career path, I went to Australia and I lived there for a few years. And then after that, I moved to back to Berlin. Right, so you, you've had a bit of a world tour. A little bit, yes. Uh, I really, really like to travel. That's uh, one thing that I really appreciate is to move around and get to know different people, um, different cultures, as well as different uh, research um, universities and people doing amazing work around the world. So I tried to do that um, a little bit while I was still living in Europe before I moved to Australia. And then I also tried to do that while I was in Australia um, and getting to know all the wonderful research that uh, we have also in Australasia. So yeah. that's something that pleases me is to meet uh, all this wonderful research work around the world. Yeah. Wow. So you're, you know, you're curious and a real adventurer. I am. I, I've got to say that I, ha I am. I have this travel bug thing that I really like to um, go around the globe and not only get to know uh, what people are up to in research, um, but also uh, cultures as well as nature. I really like to um, enjoy nature and just uh, uh, get immersed in all of these different ecosystems. Um, I really also enjoy that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. But you're but you're in Berlin, and I've not been to Berlin. Um, I I think it's got to be on the list, or so I so I hear. That's a city, obviously. So where do you get your nature from? Oh, yeah, that's true. So uh, there is a lot of nature around Berlin, thankfully. So lakes and there's also uh, the Baltic Sea as well. So every once in a while, you just uh, go and um, into nature for a few days and uh, really charge up your batteries because Berlin is a wonderful city. I really love it because it's such a vibrant uh, cultural diversity uh, in the city and cultural offer itself. Um, it's so vibrant that sometimes you just just really need to go out of the city to re recharge batteries um, and go into nature. Yeah, yeah, and I guess there, as as with some of the other things you've already mentioned, there's there's this absolute blending then of your kind of personal needs and interests, and then what you're doing work-wise, because this is about looking after yourself, getting into nature. Yes. Absolutely. It's um, extremely important that because um, uh, academia can be extremely demanding, as many other jobs can be extremely demanding. And sometimes um, we are so focused on uh, accomplishing all the goals that we have and serving our field the best that we can. And we might even forget to um, take care of ourselves um, so to do a little bit of self-care. And I do find that um, in, in nature, uh, that it really uh, helps me to then uh, stay grounded and take care of my mental health. Um, I do feel that especially, at least in my case, because my work is so intellectual, um, so you know, always uh, um, at the computer, at the office, and writing or reading and doing a lot of intellectual work, I do feel that uh, once I um, need to relax um, and to take care of my mental health, 
um, that going closer to nature or uh, engaging in activities that are um, that involve the body are the ones that I find that are the most um, the most effective for my mental health. It's quite interesting, like, uh, for example, yoga um, or meditation or dancing or traveling uh, or even the gym. Um, so things that I can use my body, so activities that involve using my body are the ones that I find that are going to be the ones that, oh, I'm really relaxing in a way that if I'm reading a book, I am not because that's already what I do very much in my daily life is very intellectual. So using the body in some kind of like activities of uh, exploration or meditation or yoga is really what I find that it's most efficient for, for me. Yeah. So you, do you have a daily practice of things like that? Hmm. Yes, um, uh, sometimes I get um, a little bit, uh, I let the work get a little bit on the way, which I shouldn't. We should remind ourselves of that, but I do try as much as I can um, to do end up my day with um, a little bit of meditation, just sitting around for even if it's five minutes, it's really, really helpful to get grounded and also to do some sort of like body scan. I find that very useful. So you just use that kind of like practice. It can be like a guided meditation. So everyone can engage uh, in that kind of activity and start practicing five minutes of a body scan. Uh, research shows that it's really, really effective um, for many, many uh, different um, general uh, mental health conditions such as anxiety or depression. Um, it's really helpful to do that kind of, for example, body scan meditation mm. or um, yoga. And it can also be a mix between the two. Sometimes I do that. Um, sometimes I don't feel like doing a very um, intense yoga session. So I'll just mix it up uh, with um, yoga and meditation. And so kind of like a flowy. It's really, really wonderful to do that after a very long day of uh, intense intellectual work in academia as we all do yeah wow okay so i mean when did you start getting into that sort of practice of, of yoga and meditation is it something that's been there for a long time or, or did it emerge from your work it has been here for a long time actually um i've been doing yoga uh for at least 15 years so, um, yeah, I've been doing for a while. It's something that really does something for me. It's really special in my life. And I wish that I could do a little bit more. But sometimes, of course, uh, we don't have uh, that time. But it's been it's been for a while that I do that. And I've been more and more uh, doing meditation as well. Um, so that's, uh, that's those are the ones that I've been more involved with and one that I really want to um, start practicing uh, that I'll be uh, new at it is um, breath work. Right. OK. Yes. What, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm really uh, I, I will really be very, very in a very beginners level. Um, but we do have uh, been we've been conducting research um, in, in many labs around the world, but we are starting a project. A colleague of mine is starting a project here at the Berlin School of Mind and Brain with Breathwork and also the Mind Foundation um, also uh, has got some research on that. And it has been having or showing you know, wonderful results um, for this particular general mental health conditions. Um, so that's why I'm really uh, eager to uh, try that myself uh, in a in a most uh, serious way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we 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 all breathe by just the nature of 
being. Um, but there's there's breathing and then there's breathing well. Um, and there's lots of reasons why people don't necessarily breathe well that kind of stem back to when they were kids, you know, and right right back from from the beginning. That the research that you you talked about there is it a specific kind of breathing practice that people are being taught and then it's measured, or is it general, or what's the what's the deal? It is a specific kind of practice that you are going to follow some kind of like um, patterns of breathing. So in in different ways of uh, of breathing, and the interesting thing about it is that you can think of it as and this is what I find most fascinating is that, um, <coughs> excuse me, is that you can think of trauma as something that it is almost as there is muscle memory where you carry your trauma around, right? So you walk around life and you navigate your world uh, carrying around all the traumas in your body, in your muscles, right? In the way that you uh, move. So you can think of these practices, for example, the breath work as a way of sort of like freeing yourself from certain traumas. So that's why it is becoming um, or it is uh, has been for a while in more Eastern cultures and now more Westernized, um, a very important interventional psychotherapeutic intervention uh, tool to combine with, for example, methodologies such as talk therapy or other methodologies, including uh, uh, augmented therapy such as psychedelics and other um, other approaches to mental health. But just to think about that, because it's quite scary, isn't it, to think about that you are um, a result of all your past experiences, good or bad, and the bad ones, that those that really have an, an impact on you, such that they even changed you um, in, in a very impactful way, um, then you are the results of those as well. Um, so how do you deal with them? How do you treat them? How do you make peace with them, right? So you can do some kind of like psychotherapeutic talk therapy, uh, use some techniques that are also very useful, such as uh, acceptance theory and all of those kinds of uh, interventions. But these more bodily approaches, such as breath um, work or yoga or meditation, they're quite uh, useful because they focus on the body as opposed to just that side of like intellectualizing or interpreting the feelings or interpreting actions and working through them, which is also very important. But there's a body that is also very much involved in everything that we are and do. So working on that and focusing on that uh, can be a very uh, useful complementary tool. Yeah. Wow. Gosh, there's, there's so much in there and it's absolutely resonating. I mean, the one of the big problems that we have in certainly in, in Western healthcare, if we can call it that, um, is still these silos, isn't it, of the, the physical and the mental um, and, and kind of even different buildings. You go, you go to different departments for, for different parts of your, your body when, when clearly well, to me, it's clear, but not everyone that there's just one, there's one person here. And I suppose a, a simple example would be, you know, your the gratitude practice is, is quite common. You see lots of people talking about that now. And then people kind of intellectualize it to use your words. And so it's it's all here. It, it becomes like this tick list. Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful I've got a house and I'm grateful I've got food and I've got a job. Tick, tick, tick. Right. Done that. As opposed to a whole person thing where you really feel 
as well as think about. But but that sort of strikes. I mean, this this is right up your street. The how how do you or can you ever think and feel separately? Yeah. So absolutely, it seems that um, somewhat theoretically we have dismissed Cartesian dualism, right? Because of all the philosophical issues that come up with the Cartesian dualism. But somewhat um, what you find in a lot of uh, research or clinical practice in um, in psychology is a, an assumption, an underlying um, implicit assumption of Cartesian dualism. And that is why it is important that all of us um, doing any work, uh, either as researchers or clinical practitioners in psychology, should be very should use our best critical thinking right to precisely ask those kinds of questions so i am treating a person what is it that constitutes a person right because as i was saying you can focus on the talk therapy and talking out talking it out and talking it through and that's of course very important because there you can work with something like pattern breaking. You can try to break the patterns of thinking that are unhelpful for the subject to continue on their life. So that is really important. But then there is also these other patterns of living that are very embodied. And we find these kinds of approaches um, in contemporary cognitive science in embodied in inactive cognitive science or what's the so-called e-cognition, because there's a bunch of e's um, and different approaches. And in, within this family of theories, it's precisely to uh, bring uh, uh, the whole holistic perspective of uh, what a human being or a subject or an individual is like and what components, multi-scale components that reciprocally influence each other continuously, how do they interact with uh, with, uh, with each other, how all parts that constitute a human being or an individual interact such that then we have at a specific uh, time um, a specific uh, psychological state. right? So that specific psychological state is constituted by uh, the history of all your past interactions as a, a living system. So not as a body slash mind or body on one side, mind on the other. No, because precisely the idea there is that you have the experience that you have because you are embodied in a certain way. So to put it in a very uh, rudimentary, uh, silly example, it would be my embodied experience is quite different from what it would be if I were to be a butterfly, for example. Right. So that's something that you cannot escape from. I cannot just simply decide that I'm not going to have the embodied experience that I that I do have. And another very important component is um, the social cultural environment in which my embodied experience happens, right? So the idea is that I cannot, I can't just simply decide that I'm not going to be social culturally enculturated the way that I have been in the past with all the experiences that I've had from the body that I've experienced all of this. So we don't, and we cannot have in a specific moment in time, we cannot have a disembodied experience 
of a certain state of affairs in the world, right? So it would be silly to think that there is a mind that is encapsulated and that the body plays absolutely no role because the mind just disembodied leaf, this word even exists, um, just uh, thinks or makes inferences or theorizes about the world, but the body plays absolutely no role or no interesting function. That would uh, be um, would not make sense, or would potentially entail some form of dualism. Yeah, it's it's almost like the body just sort of gets relegated down, um, and and ignored, or or in some cases um, promoted and, and elevated at the expense of everything else. So you know the biomedical approach, say someone who has back pain. The focus is, you know, on the back and then we go in and then it's on the joint or the disc and then you can go in and in and in and in. So, I mean, where do you stop? And of course, the further you go in, the further away from the person and their their lived experience and, and the world they, they become. So I guess that's why, why, you know, phenomenological thinking is so important to keep us tethered to that that bigger picture. Yes, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that you said that uh, really caught my attention is that it's it's very correct. It's either we focus completely on the mind and we forget that the body is there and the body is the mind. It's not that the body allows uh, mental experience. The body is part of all of that. You cannot have an, a, a psychological experience without um, the body being there playing a very fundamental role. But you're very right when you said, and I completely agree, when you said that either we focus completely um, on the mind and we forget about the role of the body because everything really comes down to um, um, just the mind, or we focus completely on the body, in which case that would look like a very um, reductionist approach to psychological experience or psychological life, such as focusing entirely uh, and completely on, for example, the neurobiological activity, right, as reducing uh, psychological experience to uh, neurobiological activity, such as what is happening in the nervous system. In which case, for example, for pain therapy, then the answer must be somewhere in the body or in the nervous system once we are to uh, to treat, uh, supposedly, once we start off with that premise. So it's quite interesting that a holistic perspective would change things a little bit, um, especially in the case of uh, pain. Yeah, I mean, an example there that springs to mind is that, you know, someone might have a, a strong belief, use yours and Mark's language, perhaps a hyper prior, that, that pain is embodied and, and the issue is where you, you feel it wherever that happens to be in the body. But then you might go and, and see a friend who holds your hand and your pain is relieved. So you're not actually doing anything to the bit that hurts, the back, the knee, the neck, whatever. You're just connecting with someone and holding someone's hand, which of course changes your, your biological state, if you want to look at it through, through that lens, which then changes your, your lived experience. But clearly you're not doing anything to the bit that hurts. Absolutely. And uh, how interesting is that? It's precisely um, this perspective of um, 
this other sort of framework that I've been working on, which is complex systems theory. And it's a little bit of the idea to put it very simple of like patterns all the way down. So the psychological experience is um, about these patterns of thinking, patterns of feeling, uh, the history of experiencing psychologically the world. And then you can scale down this, all of these patterns into the body level, the neurobiology level, patterns of uh, interaction um, of all the biophysical um, and chemical uh, interactions that happen within your um, biological body. So um, it's interesting that once you would go and, for example, spend some time uh, with somebody that, um, that you found off um, and that has an actual, actually, that has a causal, positive causal effect on a pain that could have been diagnosed as chronic pain, which chronic pain, you know, there's way better than I do, but I remember studying chronic pain in my neuroscience uh, course, that it's one of the least known, one of the least known phenomena, which is quite interesting that the one thing that you've just mentioned is that turns out that you can go and have a lived experience that will alleviate um, a chronic pain or a pain in a in a way that other things uh, such as medication, for example, wouldn't otherwise. So this is clearly uh, this kind of like facts that we see, even if we don't have the science behind it yet. But these are facts that we see, and they are worth studying and interesting to study. So what is that relates uh, from that um, sort of like? Uh, psychological experience of um, being with someone having a nice time so a very good experience and that has actually a positive causal effect on um, pain that is of course uh, I dare say it was extremely embodied is uh, um, uh, right there um, in intervening and um, influencing all scales of your life because living with chronic pain it's going to influence all scales of your life it it's it's very very hard yeah it's it was interesting because um i don't know if you've heard of johan hari who who wrote about depression um wrote a book called lost connections and and i was i was reading that when it when it came out and um and it struck me there was a lot of similarities with that and and chronic pain depression and chronic pain in as much as there's often this this loss of connection with what matters so people and a purpose and and the planet i usually sort of say three p's to make it easy and then the b the body so you you kind of lose this this natural connection that you have and that causes a lot of suffering and he tells a story about um a farmer i believe it was in vietnam um who or was somewhere in in that part of the world and he'd he'd lost his leg i think on landmine um injury which is you know quite quite common um and he'd lost his livelihood and was suffering with depression and some some western doctors had gone out to sort of help and to to work out there and they were talking about this this case and um the treatment and and the treatment for this farmer was actually to right he was a rice farmer but the treatment was to buy him a cow so that he could then become a cow a dairy farmer um and that's what helped him deal with his depression more more skillfully it wasn't based in medication i'm not saying there's no role for medication i've probably told the story really badly so apologies but 
but essentially the point is that you know again that was an external thing it was it was reconnecting someone with something that has meaning and purpose and and, and perhaps feeling you're useful again and that seems to be a really important part of this this being well sustainably but also overcoming some sort of sticky problem like chronic pain or depression yeah, I am absolutely thrilled that you mentioned this and you emphasized the, the reconnection or the connection because that is precisely um, the way that um, so I was work I work I did some work on um, psychedelics with uh, Robin Kahat Harris and we applied complex systems theory to um, psychedelics but you can also think about it in a more general way where. Um, psychological treatment of general mental health conditions such as uh, depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD, uh, eating disorders or uh, addiction, um, those kinds of uh, general mental health conditions, so those that do not necessarily involve um, psychosis um, and can be developed precisely because of the way that you have you are interacting with the world um, and the world and that interaction eventually develops or evolves into a stuck state, as we call it, in complex systems. Um, so it's interesting that once you think about uh, psychopathology uh, in general mental health conditions like those as an, a developing trajectory that develops into some sort of a stuck state, then it becomes quite clear that in order to have some positive therapeutic effect, you need to disturb or perturb that stuck state, right? And you can think about that generally speaking, and also um, you can also apply that to uh, pain. So what happens where you could explain that little um, um, that example is that once someone goes and engages in a different kind not necessarily usual kind of activity, such as going and hanging out and having a nice experience with somebody, what happens is that that um, pattern of a, a certain pattern of living, living becomes disturbed or perturbed such that um, it changes a certain state. So that's that could be one explanation that by applying complex systems theory, we could explain that particular sort of uh, phenomenon. But then in general mental health conditions, it is quite interesting that you can precise, precisely think about um, psychological treatment as a perturbation of unhealthy patterns. And these can be unhealthy patterns, for example, because um, for example, in depression, an unhealthy pattern is rumination about certain thoughts that are not useful for that person, negative thoughts, low self, that generally speaking would relate very much with low self-esteem and those kinds of things. So then um, psychotherapeutic intervention would have to aim at changing those unhealthy patterns of thinking, right? And we can think about the change the positive change of those unhealthy patterns of thinking as instead of cure as reconnection. Mm -hmm. So it can be that instead of someone that is sick, so to say, mentally sick, mentally ill, these are kind of like more traditional orthodox ways of putting mental health conditions. But instead of using those orthodox terms, uh, we can think about it as not someone that is um, mentally ill and needs to be treated 
um, of course, there's a diagnosis there, I'm not denying that, but as a reconnection. So there were connections that were lost, and now we should do some work for that person to um, regain um, connections that were lost and potentially find and develop new connections, right? So an example that I also discuss a lot with Mark, and you mentioned Mark's work, um, is that, for example, in addiction, addiction is also one of those that permeates all scales of life because your life comes very reduced to one particular thing, right? So then what you have to do there is perturb that um, pattern of living to spread out and find new ways of new activities. So that's why, for example, discussing this with Robert, uh, with Robin uh, Kahart Harris, we talk a lot about reconnecting. So in these cases, it's about um, uh, finding, uh, uh, getting the subjects to find new ways of reconnecting precisely with themselves, so individually, uh, socially, and with nature. So then once you get to this point, you can now start thinking about uh, psychotherapeutic methodologies that do not necessarily and maybe even preferably are not going to occur inside a um, therapeutic office. They mm -hmm. might have to occur actually outside of the therapeutic office or in different conditions, in different set settings that precisely are going to allow to establish and regain these connections. And this is uh, very much in line with um, complex systems theory, precisely because complex systems theory understands that um, this uh, reciprocal multi-scale interaction of, all, of patterns all the way down or patterns all the way up, and now everything is sort of like connected with everything. Mm. And how important it is um, in different um, uh, conditions or with different symptoms to work individually to use and apply individual uh, therapy for uh, by studying uh, that particular person as one particular trajectory and completely beyond or even rejecting I dare say um, any group level approaches such that oh now you have here a formula that will work to treat depression so you're going to apply that throughout um, to all the person the, the 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 people coming to you struggling with depressive symptoms. Symptoms. And research even shows that depressive symptoms, um, they are diverse across cultures. So in different cultures, depression symptoms are going to show up. Some show up much more intellectual, so much more cognitive. And in other cultures, they show up very, very embodied, which is quite interesting mm. for chronic pain as well. Yeah, wow. That, that's fascinating. But it, it's kind of... I mean, you're 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 preaching to the converted in the sense that that I can't see any other way than everyone has their own unique story, and and there was no reason why anyone should have, you know, the same thing going on. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, it's the same, but actually, when you look at it, it, it can't. I just can't see how it can ever be, be the same. So as you said, you you know, to to blankly say, right, this therapy for the for people suffering, you know, I think how many people suffer depression? How many people with chronic pain? I mean, we're talking about millions and millions of people. How can there be one way to to help them um, as a versus actually sitting down with them, listening to their story, working out what's going on um, and then helping them to reconnect with with what matters? I mean, in a way, it sort of ties in with simple Buddhist concepts such as, you know, which seeds are you going to water in your life? 
um, or, or the you know which wolf are you going to feed? And of course, the person's not doing it on purpose. I think I, I always like hasten to add that that bit. You know, when we're talking about the way that you're thinking or the stories you're telling yourself about what's happening, it's not it's not on purpose. People aren't blameworthy for that. But but it's that awareness, isn't it? How can we help people become more aware of what they're doing rather than be entangled with it? Yeah, absolutely. I think you touched a very important, uh, relevant point, which is sitting with a person and listening to their own individual story. Because um, chronic pain is quite hard in, in that uh, it's the most uh, one of those cases where it's and convey to you the personal psychological experience that they are having that is permeating all scales of their life. So they need to be heard and their story is what is going to tell you something about how to move next and try to help them overcome that um, particular problem that they have. Um, and the same occurs um, in uh, mental health struggles. Um, and that is why I truly think that on this group level, um, generalized or scales that we tend to apply in more generalized uh, psychology, um, they don't really work because we need to listen to that particular trajectory. And there are many different methods that you can use. You can use even a sort of like, and this is actually a part of, uh, of the toolkit in psychology is to use uh, sort of like a network or where you put everything together and uh, you try to understand and make the person aware of um, the, 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 their state right now and how um, many aspects and factors in their lives connect to each other and try, try to work from there and break the patterns that are being unhealthy for that particular uh, for a particular sort of situation and there are many ways of breaking those patterns right but the idea and i think this is the key point is breaking patterns a pattern has been uh, a pattern as if developed into a way that is not healthy for the subject to live with that pattern and it needs to be broken down that pattern has become a stuck state and this can be in depression, in anxiety, in PTSD, it has become a stuck state. So we need to find um, a therapy or an intervention that is going to kick the person out of that stuck state. So we need to apply some disturbance, some perturbation, and uh, this can be so this perturbation has got to be uh, seen in the way of uh, it can be a perturbation of kicking the person out of the comfort zone. And here comfort zone does not necessarily, it could mean that it is something that is beneficial um, uh, for someone, but it can also mean that this comfort zone is not healthy for the person. So then the intervention has got to be kicking um, uh, that individual out of that um, particular arrangement of, um, or, of or patterns um, that they find themselves in. And one of the things or uh, one of the interventions that seem quite um, that seem quite suitable for that because of its individual dimension that it actually works individually like nothing else does this i find it to be one very positive side of it is psychedelics there is i it, i find it hard to think or come up with any other intervention that is as personalized as that one because 
the person is going to go through a sort of like um, a psychedelic experience, which is uh, the one of the most important conditions for positive behavioral or therapeutic change. Uh, and that's that. And I find it that with psychedelics, it is because they work on an individual level that allow the person to work out through certain things and have certain insights that makes it so suitable and uh, such and having such excellent results because what it does is it completely comes and it breaks down disturbing your usual perspective of the world so yeah. your set of beliefs that you've been like building and carrying around which is imagine that all of us individually have one single perspective towards the world and we cannot just simply decide, oh, I'm not going to have this perspective. That's what we were talking about, like this embodied perspective that comes from the body that you have and how you are socioculturally situated, right? You can't simply decide not to have that. So you only have that. What psychedelics give you is the possibility of now having a different perspective. Okay, what if things are like that and things connect in a different way? So this is extremely valuable. For example, and it's it's just a completely fascinating, the results for PTSD with veterans. Mm -hmm. So veterans come from mostly, um, they come from, from war, of course, and they're struggling with PTSD. And therapy is very is very hard to 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 help them with usual therapy, and psychedelics are having a very huge positive impact on on treating PTSD from uh, within or in uh, veterans, um, and that's precisely because it allows this other different perspective of. It's two things. It's not only that it allows you the 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 possibility of seeing things, looking at your experience from a different angle, um, but also it is that it is um, highly reconnecting mm. because it gives mm. that mystical experience. You reconnect with yourself by having this other way, by being kinder, more compassionate with yourself. So the perspective that you occupy is a perspective that comes from compassion. So now you're going to have the opportunity of looking towards the world, but from a compassionate and the kind place where you're not going to engage uh, in thoughts or thinkings or interpretations that are as judgmental about yourself or about others or about the world. And that um, allows you precisely to re not only to have um, these different way of looking and interpreting yourself, but also these reconnections. So it turns out that everything is comes full circle almost because now we're talking back again about um, treating or helping people that are struggling uh, with uh, mental health um, to uh, not talking not as much as a matter of cure, but as a matter of reconnection, reconnecting something has been lost. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, how do yeah. we reconnect? Yeah, I mean that 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 sort of triggered a couple of a couple of thoughts. I mean, the the first one is kind of how how it is that we come to get stuck. How how does that happen? Why do we have systems that that allow that to happen? Because of course PTSD, you know, in in a war environment which is which is full of uncertainty and and volatility, 
you know, we, we need to be, I mean, not that I can relate to it at all, but the, the person needs to be able to respond to, to that and be on high alert. But of course, on coming back to a world which is more certain, less volatile, not completely, but coming home, for example, um, and but then still responding in ways that will be appropriate here on the battlefield, but not in your in your lounge. Have you got any ideas how, how that might happen, how we get stuck with that? Yes, absolutely. And it does come down to being able to explain that through patterns. So um, you have these patterns of doing things. So let's imagine that um, sometimes we do um, as academics, we have to move to another country for, say, three, four months. And it takes us at least two months to adjust and start having our habits, our routines. Right. And once we do, we start getting a little bit more of a autopilot, so to speak. Um, because now we have come down to um, be able to navigate the environment by reducing the uncertainty that the environment otherwise had before as we were adjusting to a completely new environment. So now we are in a different city and we were already able to overcome a lot of its uncertainty that it had before because it was completely new and we were navigating a brand new environment, high levels of uncertainty. And the more you interact with the environment, that's why it is extremely important to interact with the environment. And this is possible to be explained through many different approaches. But the interaction with the environment becomes extremely important because that's how you reduce uncertainty, right? So when you come to a new city, the more you navigate the new city, the, the, you minimize or decrease the levels of uncertainty. And by doing that, the converse also happens. You get much more um, pattern and routines that um, then you start behaving and interacting uh, in a certain way, given the way that um, that you have minimized or come to uh, minimize that particular environment. So now when you put this is like a very sort of common um, uh, experience uh, for people that you know have to travel and um, and do that for work. And now you can extrapolate that into a much more difficult situation psychologically, uh, which is uh, somebody going into war. It is the same kind of thing, but of course um, multiplied uh, by a million, uh, which is an environment that, of course, everything is brand new, but the levels of uncertainty are always going to be there because the levels of uncertainty are a threat to your life. Mm. So the it's ultimate. not just that the uncertainty was about information and how do I process all of this information of a new city and how do I navigate it suitably, right? It is that the levels of uncertainty in that particular environment are as high as a threat, a continuous threat to your life. And the environment itself is, of course, um, very threatening. So then eventually you've also find your ways to try to minimize the uncertainty that comes in with that very peculiar um, environment and you come up with ways of um, coping. I'm not going to say adjust and adapt because I find it very hard to think that you adjust and adapt. I would say coping with um, that particular kind of um, very intense uh, life-threatening environment. And let's say that now you stay there in that environment for, say, six months, and then you come back to uh, home, to a city where you used to live that is completely antagonic 
to what you were living before. So now you've been training yourself into these patterns of survival, mm. uh, coping uh, patterns in that very um, life-threatening situation. Now you go back to um, uh, home, now you come with the patterns of that specific environment and you need to have some help, some guidance in getting back into this particular um, way of living and interacting with this other environment. But then the problem is, it's not only that, because this is one part of it. The other side of it is that you have seen things, you have experienced things as a full living being, you have experienced things that now will become trauma. Mm -hmm. If they're not treated, they will become, because now you have to overcome um, trauma because of that experience so it's not only the way that you navigate and you cope and you try to um survive a very threatening environment but you the the the, the, the specifics of the environment itself are going to impact mental health and psychological life in a way that um they might um very likely they will change you in a very impactful manner which we would call, for example, in, in, in complex systems as a transition or a bifurcation. So it's very hard that you will, to put it in very simple terms, that you will become, as you come back home, that you will become anywhere close to whomever you used to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess you can tie that into, you know, often seeing addictions as a way of of way of coping with those feelings um and and to use your the word I've, i i think i've heard you use you know the niche so you know to to have those those very intense emotions and then might use alcohol or drugs or something like that which makes them feel better so in that niche doing well so you kind of feel that you're actually i'm doing all right here i mean not necessarily thinking it but just you sort of feel better Meanwhile, other niches in your life, like relationships, work and, and, and health in the long term, all, all crumbling. But you don't really notice that so much because you're, you're doing so well at dealing with those really strong emotions by using whatever you're using. Yes, absolutely. This is something that exactly that we have discussed as well um, in our work uh, with psychedelics and mental health is that you have become now so in order to cope with, for example, let's say trauma, right, um, or depression, you found in um, certain a certain substance, certain substance, a way of coping, which means uh, to use some um, some uh, lingo from complex systems. It means that you found now a new attractor. So now, in order to cope with a certain state of affairs in your life, you have now found a new attractor and you're visiting the attractor more and more and more and more. And that's how addictive behavior comes to be. Because the rule of thumb in, in complex systems is the more you visit a certain attractor, the, the more likely it is that it is going to become a very strong attractor. And mm. that explains um, the addiction in the end. It, a certain behavior evolving and developing to become an what we would call as a construct an addiction to a certain substance. So then we have another problem. So we already had a problem which was a trauma that is or a depression that has not been treated. And now we have developed another problem, which is addiction. So now that's why we can never only treat addiction. 
We have to treat the whole person because there's something that is behind that addiction that led to that kind of a coping strategy. Uh, right. So um, in that particular sense, um, now um, what is happening is that the person is going to become extremely skilled, very good at one thing, which is that addiction activity. Right. So, so to speak, so to put. Um, so they're going to become very, very uh, good at that one particular and I call it activity because it's almost we see these attractors as almost as if they were activities. The more attractors you have, um, the more diverse your uh, life is. So the more you engage with the world in different ways, which is called multi-stability. And that is really good because it means that if a stressor happens in your life, the more multi-stability you have, so the more activities you engage with, the, the better network you have, the, the easier it's going to be for you to bounce back from the stressor. So when you have very little or very few attractors say addiction and that one is very highlighting of this point because that's what I mean when I say that um, there are certain attractors that permeate all scales of your life such that your life becomes reduced to that attractor. All the rumination in your head is going to be about that attractor, visiting that attractor. And what happens is um, that multi-stability is good. And being in a stuck state means that you now are visiting less and less other activities that you do that would allow you to be much, a much more fulfilled, wholesome human being and experience life. Um, and you're reducing those activities, reducing that multi-stability into uh, one single activity, one single attractor, say addiction. And that's where the problem lies is that that's that would be somewhat one way that one can conceive of mental health and being unhealthy um, or um, healthy patterns of thinking or healthy patterns of living and healthy patterns of living. That's one way of thinking about it. Yeah, wow. So again, it's it's that kind of, you know, if you've got all these different options, these these different things that you can use, the attractors, the things that you can head towards it's almost like that that builds your kind of energy your resilience your your wellness to then be able to deal with the tricky bits of life but if you've been in a war zone we're using that example then that's kind of become the big deal and now all these other things have, have kind of shrunk away so it's like those seeds have really been watered that bit's really kind of grown and to that person, the only way they know of coping with those those awful feelings is with the the drug or or the or the alcohol. And I guess on a kind of a more day to day basis, that's you know the pattern is similar to someone who have, you know maybe they have a stressful job. Obviously, stress is an individual interpretation, but they but they go home every night and drink half a bottle of bottle of wine. Now, I'm not saying alcoholic, but just that's the way that they deal with it and they feel better and it's very permissive of course in our society and everyone will go oh yeah have a glass of wine you'll feel better meanwhile that's affecting your sleep and you may be affecting your metabolism and a whole bunch of other and then the knock-on effects of that so again the same kind of idea sort of bringing it more day to day that we can all be doing these things where we feel that we're we're coping meanwhile other things are falling apart in the in the long term 
Absolutely, that is a very important point because it's not just that we can apply this reasoning to understand a lot of psychological life, in um, particularly in uh, mental health um, conditions such as the ones that we've been discussing with depression or anxiety or addiction, PTSD. But uh, we can also adapt, we can also apply this uh, um, uh, framework to well-being such that uh, for a very important thing, which is preventive mental health, which is a, a, a much uh, better uh, way of addressing uh, mental health as opposed to, you know, the post uh, well, uh, the post intervention or treatment to it would be to um, develop a society that is devoted towards the prevention of mental health, that we are educated precisely to understand that as we interact with the environment, it is very likely, it is possible, it is very likely and it is very possible that eventually, given certain circumstances, state of affairs, in um, in the way that we interact uh, with our social cultural environments, it is very likely that you might develop some condition at some point. Depression, anxiety, PTSD, it is possible. Um, so the idea there is um, to, so we already talked about uh, the intervention being individualized, being very important. But now the other second factor that is quite relevant is um, the, um, the preventive mental health. So well-being. Now this brings us to well-being and how can we develop um, sort of like strategies for us to be aware um, of uh, the importance of our well-being such that we don't evolve or our experience will not evolve or develop into a stuck state, such as those conditions, right? So um, some things that we can now take some advantage of, and I've been working on that a little bit, is to use or to work with technology and AI kinds of um, systems in order to track precisely tipping points. So in order to um, track or predict when a tipping point can happen, and if it does so happen, then it could be the case that the subject is going to uh, get into depressive symptoms and eventually potentially um, develop uh, depression and be in that kind of sort of specific order of stuck state. So then it is quite interesting now to work with technology and use, for example, um, wearable technology, which is highly individualized to track this kind of um, biorhythm data uh, so that then um, we could we can develop um, this um, sort of uh, intervention such that that data is going to be tracking the well-being of that individual and predicting given the activities that the individual engages with outside, inside, practical activities, uh, body activities, um, uh, with the alcohol consumption, um, general consumption. Um, so you can track all of those kinds of kind of data and that this technology can uh, predict whether or not you might be getting close or closer to develop a certain kind of pattern that we would deem as unhealthy for you. And you would also know and understand that is unhealthy for you. That's why you are using this technology in first place is because you want to keep your well-being. 
So yeah. it's this yeah. reversing of bringing out well-being as being something that should be on the foreground as a very important aspect of our lives or of our individual experience to keep as a very precious thing to keep. Yeah, so I mean that speaks of being being more proactive, isn't it, of, of leading the kind of life where you prioritise well-being um, and and see it perhaps as a set of skills. I mean, Richard Davidson obviously has been talking about the skills of being well for for a few years and looking at you know what what happens you know in the brain, but in us and what can we do um, to be on that that path again. You know, watering the right seeds. I, I want to be well. I want to perform in life. Therefore, these are the types of things I do, like cleaning my teeth. And I guess the technology you're talking about there would subtly pick up on when, when you're just straying from the path a little and give you some kind of little nudge. Absolutely. And of course, um, there's a lot of education work that we need to do as a society uh, for a well-being society of the future. So there's a lot of education that we should do into bringing to the foreground the importance of well-being um, and our mental health um, as something worth um, and important um, to be in the foreground. Um, and some people are very aware of it already and they use this kind of like technology to for example, because they engage in sports, so they're very active uh, with sports. And that's why we have all these um, watches and rings and all of these different technology that we have. But it's mostly used um, to track the rhythm and the data associated with physical activity. And again, we find the same problem that we started off with because it is being used, the technology is used mostly uh, for the tracking of the physical activity, right? But there is a missed opportunity to use that technology now to the mental fitness, such yeah. that we understand the holistic person, what is going on. So we use this kind of technology, not only for the physical activity, which is of course very important, but for mental fitness as well. Mm. So we change um, the conversation of things and as opposed to uh, focusing as we have so much in physical fitness, we can now with this kind of technology, and we, I've got a paper um, out on this particular topic uh, recently, which is precisely to use this sort of uh, technology for mental fitness. Wow, okay. I mean, how, how can you, because it's quite easy to measure physical fitness um, we are with, a, with a watch, you know, I have a running watch and, and whatnot, that's all quite straightforward. But But what would that look like in terms of capturing how I am, how I'm feeling, the quality, the, the attitude of my mind? Yes, um, absolutely. So you can you can now do something very interesting, which is to cross data, the physical data. So how much you move, right? You have all of that data already available. So you can, together with that, uh, with an app um, that will, for example, this is just one example of the many possibilities, but one example would be to collect self-reports. So then you can uh, cross the data between like how much you move, how much um, uh, uh, your rhythms, all of the kinds of rhythms that we know that are very traceable, very easy, as you say, um, to, to get um, from those kinds of watches. 
but you can also um, link uh, that technology, for example, with self-reports, where someone um, randomly in the middle of the day um, gets a notification to fill out a report about a, uh, how they're feeling about a certain um, 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 psychological experience that they might be having at that time. And then that can be followed up with, are you outside? Are you inside? What do you see? How does that make you feel? So the possibilities here now are, are infinite of how you are going to link um, the very um, um, physical, so to speak, very easy to collect kind of data that we already have for physical um, fitness with mental fitness, for example, with, um, with self-reports. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've, I'm sure you've already thought of this, but the the importance of someone being able to look back at how they've been over the last week or month or whatever is is just this ripe evidence of what's actually been happening versus the story you might be telling yourself in that moment. So if you're feeling rotten in the moment, you're much more likely to tell yourself the story of how life is bad, nothing's working out, my pain is worse, that kind of thing. So, you know, the the accuracy of remembering how things are and and presenting to yourself i mean i i often get people to to journal just even in brief words what's gone well each day so they study their own successes as evidence because a lot of people that i see with who are suffering chronic pain don't acknowledge the good stuff they're doing they don't even see that they've come to their session or they did some meditation or they moved around as being a success they it's just completely forgotten it's off the radar but you're bringing that evidence to try and update you know the way that they're seeing themselves because it is always changing but if we're saying to ourselves it's the same it's the same it's the same the story is too convincing yes there are two very important points um to be made there um so um one of the points is that we do have a tendency uh psychologically to leave the present moment um according to the most recent events to have a, 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 we are a, we have a tendency to adjudicate the present moment to very recent events as opposed to having a more forest uh, bird's eye view uh, of um, life events right so that's one thing that um, that uh, speaks I think to what the process that comment but a second thing that I find um, that is very elucidating to um, chronic pain is comes actually from phenomenology and. It is so interesting the way that phenomenology describes the lived body experience. So as opposed to the much more biological view of the biological body. So the way that Mahlou-Ponty in Phenomenology of Perception, the whole chapter on the body is extremely insightful, I find, to understand the life experience or the psychological experience of someone that is struggling with chronic pain. Because what seems to happen if we apply these insights from Mothlo-Ponty is that, so there's this dichotomy of, um, so once you are in this lived experience of this body, um, there is what Mothlo-Ponty calls the directness to the world. So you are directed towards the world from your lived experience, from the point of view of your body. So then what happens there is that the body is the medium through which you have the experience that you have. But this is fine. What, is, what becomes more interesting is um, that the body is that medium uh, as long as the body is transparent. 
So the body's transparent is is perceived is uh, experienced as transparent because the body is the what Merleau-Ponty calls the I can I can have access to the world as opposed to I think about the world. The body is the I can I can have access I can navigate the world in the ways that I can. But having this human body as opposed to, for example, a butterfly, which would be so free to fly uh, from flower to flower, it would be wonderful. Um, so the butterfly can do that. So um, I can navigate the world in the ways that I can, and um, I can do that because my body is transparent to me, so I can have this subjective experience of the world. Now, when something goes wrong with my body, let's say that I fall, I trip and I fall, and now I hurt my leg, right? Now, what was happening is that my subjective lived experience is going to cease for a little and I'm going to direct all my attention to my leg because my leg has become not um, a, a lived body experience, but my leg has now become an object, an object of scientific inquiry. Right. And this is, I think, very insightful because this is when the body becomes opaque is when the body is not a subjective lived experience, it's not the medium of the subjective lived experience, but the body is now subject of scientific inquiry. It's, a, it's an object. So what's wrong? So it's like this moment where I cannot anymore, I cannot interact the ways in which I would like to interact with the world. I cannot go to the world the way that I wanted because my body is not allowing. That's when the, bo the body becomes opaque and it's not transparent anymore. So now imagine this applied to chronic pain. So what happens is that these psychological lived body that is allowed by the lived body, right? The psychological experience that is allowed by the lived body now is compromised because the body is always there being an object and saying, no, you cannot. Because you move like this, it hurts. You move like that, it hurts. So it's always reminding and being a, 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 high, a, a high inconvenience to the lived body. So now you cannot. Yeah, wow. I mean, that that absolutely nails it. You know, certainly a, a big part of the experience, you know, when you're listening to someone describing their their experiences, they they say this kind of thing so much and, you know, start talking about that, that, that foot or that knee or, you know, there's this real subject object in yes. in their in their dial in what they're saying in the language. And it's sort of like, and that I guess exemplifies this this loss of connection as well, because now there's there's me, this sort of sense of self. Obviously, that's a huge error. Um, and then that yeah. that bit down, and particularly Absolutely. down if it's a foot down down there. Yeah, which, yeah. Which, it becomes an entity in itself. Now it is not um, the medium for the lived experience to navigate and be in the world, but it becomes an object itself that is not allowing this interaction or it is preventing this interaction to be that flowy interaction that usually the lived body experience is what is there, this access to the world, being in the world in the way that you are. So then it's been it's being compromised by this thing that should allow us to be in the world and navigate the world and it becomes an object that is preventing me from from doing so so then what happens is that the psychological experience of the world becomes highly compromised because and this is why chronic pain is a, a very good example 
of um, this precisely phenomenology of the body and embodiment is embodiment theory and now the body plays such a crucial role in everything that we are right mm -hmm. when the body becomes compromised then the experiences of the world is going to become compromised yeah yeah exactly exactly wow i mean look there's this i i feel this is just such a introduction to so many different areas we we may we may have to come back and, and revisit some more if you're if you're up for that but there was just one other thing i was interested in um here and that is you know right the way through listening to everything that you say you know you you're bringing in the the hardcore science you're bringing in the philosophy you're bringing in the therapeutic side and you're bringing a lot of compassion with with all of that where does that come from? What who have been your influences over the years that the because often you know we, some scientists are very kind of black and white and hardcore and 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 that's not you at all that it's just so there's so much there there's so much roundedness you could be a therapist. I wish I wish um many many days because I like I say sometimes I just feel that my work is too intellectual and in many days I am the day and I think about who have I helped today. So who was my work? Because um, being an academic, sometimes it's very uh, less um, fulfilling because it's very intellectual. You write a paper, you submit a paper, you print a paper, um, and it's all very nice and good. But I do worry uh, whether all of these um, ideas uh, stay inside the gates of academia. And then in the end of the day, who are they going to help, if at all? So this is something that um, I do worry about and I question myself because I was at, at the very beginning in, in high school, um, I was very much supposed to, that was what I had in mind to go and be a clinical psychologist. So I always have that passion um, to be a clinical psychologist. Um, and I still do because I feel that at least there you kind of see immediate results, hopefully because you work on a one-to-one -one with someone and I'm very passionate about that, that uh, that you actually are helping someone as you interact with um, people in your environment. Um, so that's where it starts. Is, uh, I wanted to have that kind of impact in somebody's life that I would help them. The mind has always been extremely fascinating to me. Um, I was very lucky to have to come from um, a country that has, um, interestingly, is one of the few countries where the two only um, mandatory subjects in high school are uh, Portuguese and philosophy. So regardless, yeah, so regardless of um, your area, the one that you choose in, to do in high school, uh, one of the mandatory uh, subjects is philosophy. And that was really um, that was really good for me, at least, because I was already very interested in, in philosophy from very early on. At uh, the age of 13 years old, I was reading Buddhist philosophy and I was reading Nietzsche. My very wow. first book was uh, also spoke Zarathustra. <laughs> so these were the kind of books that I was reading at the age of 13. I was always very interested in the mind and um, to knowing how the mind works. So during my uh, philosophy in high school, um, my wonderful one of my wonderful teachers, um, uh, we were talking about it and I was telling them that I wanted to do clinical psychology. But then as they got to know me more and more, they were like, do you really want to do clinical? Because it seems like you like also a lot of philosophical topics, etc. So I started realizing that 
um, yeah, that my my role could be also um, being a researcher. Um, and then I started understanding that I would need to ground myself in one particular subject area where I would be um, uh, uh, stronger uh, or more knowledgeable or more trained and then branching out into other areas. So I tried to do that uh, during my, um, uh, my academic path. Um, so I've got degrees in, in, in philosophy, in neuroscience, in cognitive science. So I tried to educate myself in different areas that are highly close together so that I could better serve cognitive science in the work that I do in the most possible informed way. And that means uh, that then it became, uh, of course, philosophy, neuroscience, cognitive science. But then because I also have this side of me, which is kind of a sort of more Buddhist kind of approach, um, then there is this uh, other more Eastern philosophy also impacting and influencing a lot of what I do as a personal individual in my daily life, but also in my work, which I think, um, of course, um, I think that it brings um, uh, the understanding of the mind to a more holistic and a less standard or a less orthodox uh, cognitive science way. And then I was also very lucky to have very important people around me that um, have been super highly influential in in helping me in my thinking and developing my thinking and in pointing me direction so there's so many people that i'm grateful for yeah well that's it i mean you're, you're doing superb work and and the because you're doing it in that way it means you are actually reaching more people and 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 doing something like this, for example, is a chance to get your work known in another population in well, in the therapeutic um, population more and more. And, and even, you know, people who are experiencing pain and stress and anxiety and such like to be able to listen. Um, and, you know, they won't necessarily read your academic papers, but but you're influencing and, and building your influence for the right reasons um, and that's that means that you are working with people but I guess you don't necessarily see that same result do you? you don't sort of see that person leaving a clinic having had some of the explanations based on your work and going all oh, right that makes more sense now I can do this I can do that I mean I can tell you that that is happening um, you probably know but it, that that is happening and remembering that might be might be helpful that's absolutely wonderful because I do uh, um, try to get more and more um, involved in organizations around me that are doing this very important work with people um, precisely so that I'm also part a little bit uh, more of that and less of an academic, which worries me. So hearing that does make me feel very happy. I'm thrilled to hear that. Yeah, thank you. Good, good stuff. Where where can people find you and uh, and read your work? and? Well, um, I'm very active on Twitter, so every time that there's something new, I tweet about it. Um, and then uh, I also have my website, which is um, mostly updated um, regularly. Um, so that's where I keep most of my stuff and description of my interests, etc., uh, which is just www.inishipolit.com. It's just my name.com. Uh, so there, yeah, that's where you find most of it. And, and Twitter, yeah. Fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll put all those links on the um, on the page so people can can do that. And I'll grab some some paper 
um, titles and, and references from you after this and, and put all those on. Um, I did actually look up um, what Innes meant and and I sorry I and this might go down really badly but I thought you might be Spanish. Is that okay? Is that, I know now you're Portuguese but when yeah. I looked up the translation it said Spanish it said holy. Yeah I know I know <laughs> I know yes well <laughs> I'm a bit of a punk. <laughs> yeah you're a holy punk. I, don't, I mean, maybe that'll go down badly. Sorry to anyone who doesn't like that. But um, we didn't get to the punk music, but but we will do that. We'll do that next time. But listen, it's been fantastic. Thanks so much for, for sharing all of your, your knowledge and, and for the work that you do. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been wonderful to chat about all of this and you're doing such a wonderful work and the podcast is such a good opportunity for people to get to know uh, your work that you're doing together with very closely with people, which I'm fascinated by, as well as um, other more research. So it's really an, a, a wonderful hub to um, get a more practical application of more scientific and I really, I'm all up for that. So mm -hmm. thank you so much, Paul, for for letting me be part of it. Brilliant. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Thank you.